Dude. Can you, yeah. Am I hot enough? You are so hot. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. You're very, very white. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> that you're very white or that's good? <laughs> yeah, that well, no, that I'm very white. I had to stop and take a nap. I couldn't drive home. No, that's fine. I know. I don't want you to have a wreck. No. We already lost one person this week. Yeah. We don't need to lose another one. So how's the sound now? It's very tappy. <laughs> okay. I'm glad I got to see you today in person. Yeah, that was sweet. Thank you for taking your day and giving it to me and giving it to us. That was nice. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed it. I like I like it when I can visit with you, John. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> Must get every hair in place. Oh God, that's beyond <laughs> that's beyond the possibility now. From deep in the heart of downtown Williams, California, this is Disaster Tales. Today, we'll be talking about the devastating campfire in Butte County, California. My co-host today is John Harrell. They uh, said that it's 100% contained now. Oh, good. They didn't expect that until later this week, but I figured once the rains came, they would figure it out. It would help a lot. Mm -hmm. November the 8th, 2018, the campfire started in Butte County, California. This is the 25th of November. And the campfire is 100% contained today. During that time, it burned 1,627,000 or more acres. And as of today, 87 people have been killed in the fire. There's still 249 people missing as well. They're sorting through the ashes, and uh, they have cadaver dogs out trying to find enough remains to test for DNA. This was a very deadly fire, and it's it's really difficult to talk to people who have been there. Although being able to help them really makes it better. Yeah, and that that's a big big job. And how many people were affected by this fire? Do you remember? Do you have that number? No, I do not. But it was tens of thousands at least. Yeah, because I think Paradise was. Uh, well over 20,000, I think, um, that population. Well, it hit Paradise and Megalia and then some odd places around Oroville. And um, I really haven't had a chance to even look at a map yet of where the damage is. But I know that they've done GIS mapping in order to determine which homes are destroyed. Um because the inspectors still can't get out there because it's closed until they're done finding the remains. Yeah, they want to contaminate this, the scene. That's right. And also they don't want them to get hurt. There's a lot of hazardous materials out there and a lot of broken, crumbling leftovers of homes and other possessions. Um, I, I found out, I didn't know this, but in California, when they have a large wildfire like this, inmates are taken out to fight these fires. Mm -hmm. They pay them a dollar a day, which I think is a, not enough for risking your life, although I know it's really boring in prison, and they want to get out and exercise, prove themselves, whatever. A dollar a day is, is pretty low pay for such a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing when you talk about um, staffing of the fires um, and where though that human power, those teammates come from. And each, there's California Division of Forestry, those, those state firefighters, that's one, one pool. You have your local firefighters from your very, very small communities, whether it's a, a paid full-time uh, firefighter or if it's a volunteer fire department and then you've got the mutual aid that extends out of that 
Um, and when you get a fire this big in Northern California and then another fire this big down in Southern California, and we already had big fires up in the Mendocino complex earlier this year uh, out of Lakeport and Lake County and Mendocino County and North on up to Redding and Red Bluff, you get, you, you consume your available resources and then they start pulling people from out of state. And I was talking with a good friend earlier today and the topic of concierge firefighters came up and I was wondering if you'd come into that and, and I'm wondering what the history of that is in, in our current environment. What, what might happen out of that? Well, well, people may have heard about um, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian having private firefighters come to protect their home from the fires down south of here. And what that is, it's a new movement in, uh, from insurance companies and for the wealthy in general uh, concierge emergency service. Um, here, concierge service would be firefighters who go out, who are paid specifically to go out to people who have a lot of money and have paid for this service. And um, they also have, in Florida, when there's hurricanes, the con they have concierge emergency response where they go out and send helicopters out to pick up people and move them out of the state. And the, as far as the firefighters go, I know years, probably in the 19th century, in big cities, firehouses were actually um, for profit. And what they would do is they'd get a metal shield that had their logo on it, and, they'd, and a building owner would purchase their protection and put that shield on the house, and if something caught fire, the firefighters would come out, and if the shield was on that building, they would put the fire out. But if their shield was not on that building, they would leave until the firefighters who they had been paid to put it out showed up. So concierge emergency response isn't new by any means. From the point when those shields were being used, and I, I met a man one time who collected those, and he's the one that told me what they were. But from that time, we've moved to firefighters for everyone that weren't bound to a single contract. And now it looks like we're moving back that way. Wow. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds in, in the fires and the emergencies that come. Well, first of all, I want to talk about when our... POTUS went to paradise, which he mistakenly called Pleasure, California. He said, you've got to take care of the floors. You know, the floors of the forest, it's very important. And he was standing there, and then he was talking about the Finnish president. He said, Finnish, Finland is a foreign nation, and they spend a lot of time raking and cleaning and doing other things, and they don't have a problem. Which 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 actually created a response from Finland where they posted videos of themselves raking forest floors. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, it confused the it confused the president of Finland, I think, and and everybody else that ever listens to him, I think. We also had our interior secretary Ryan Zinke say. I will lay this at the foot of those environmental radicals who have prevented us from managing forests for years. And you know what? This is on them. And that's victim blaming from the highest levels. Well, as I recall, the public lands in which these fires occurred, they weren't state property. They weren't state lands. They were federal lands, weren't they? They were federal lands under the Department of the Interior and Ryan Zinke. Yeah, well, it's knowing what your job covers, I guess. Apparently. <laughs> or doesn't cover. Then also this, yeah, some clown up in Ohio, <laughs> his name is David Johnson, and he's the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he's the chairman of the Columbiana County of the Republican Party in Ohio. So he's a, a county-level 
poll it. And he said it was God's punishment to liberals. And then he posted a picture of the fire. I mean, just a, and this fire was terrible. It was huge and, and it was extremely, it, it was extremely hot fire as well. But he put it up there and then he put, put on the picture, hell on earth brought to you by the liberals of California. <laughs> and, well, and what I have to say to that is fire isn't political. It doesn't care what party you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't care what religion you are. It will burn you if it comes to you. That's sad to hear. But I can see where some people may have that belief system. Uh, well, and I think it was just an attempt to, well, especially with the, with the little guy from the Podunk County, just trying to get attention. I mean... When they talk about hell on earth brought to you by the liberals of California, that, that smacks of religious prejudice. And, uh, and you don't need... I still don't believe that we should have religion and politics joined in this country. Unfortunately, it seems that it's happened. I know that when the fires came, people are supposed to be notified by... Their, tel their text, they have to sign up to receive a warning text to evacuate. Yeah, I think that's called the Nixle system system uh, here in California. So if I want to hear of the emergency alerts, whether it's a fire police or uh, what have you, here in Sonoma County, I need to sign up for the Sonoma County or even as specific as the Santa Rosa uh, community or Lakeport, for example. Um, or Lake County or Mendocino, and then I receive all the alerts, the emergency alerts that are sent out. If I don't take that proactive um, step, then I don't get notified. And and I was speaking with a gentleman who's who is into emergency communication. He's been working on this for the last couple of years, or longer. I'm sure he's been he's been with the agency for a long time. But but he was saying that even, first of all, if you have to opt in, that, that means you have to, first of all, know that it's available and then have the equipment to receive the information. And then you have to find the place to opt in and download the application. And so that leaves out people who are not tech savvy, people who are older, people who are too poor and don't have phones. Uh, or only have one phone in the family. And it also takes out, I know in Santa Rosa last year, the fire down there came through about 2.30 in the morning, and their alerts was a text alert on their telephones, on their cell phones. And one of the first things that happened when that fire came over the hill was that it burned down a cell tower and cell service to the entire area that was in danger and later burned was cut. And most of the people that I talked to, and we had, what, 43 deaths down there last year? And I think that um, most of the people that I talked to, and I do ask them how they, how they heard about it, they said, I didn't know until a neighbor or a police officer or a firefighter banged on my door in the middle of the night and got me up and said, you need to leave. If they were lucky. If they were lucky. Uh, my friend just happened to be up that night, and she smelled smoke and looked out. And she turns her phone off at night so she doesn't get woken up in the middle of the night. Of course. She saw a fire truck go up the, up the road and saw another one come down the road. No light, just regular lights, and no siren. Mm -hmm. so, so no warning. Correct. And even that, even that Nix, Nixle warning, um, there was people that signed up for that and then complained because they were getting uh, Amber Alerts from a county that was n like next door to theirs or just two counties away. And they're saying, why am I getting an alert for this? Because it's not my county. Which, first of all, wah, I'm sorry, but alerts are alerts and... Missing children are important to people who have missing children. 
And it's important when you have a missing child that you get out there and start looking for them immediately. And just because it's not in your county, it's the next county over, doesn't mean they aren't going to drive right by your house on the way out. Correct. So, so people opted out of this emergency management notification system because they didn't want, they were getting too many Amber Alerts or too many other, they thought, unimportant alerts. Yeah, and Amber Alerts aren't that frequent when I was looking on the state CH California Highway Patrol. Um, they're not that many um, out there. When someone says many, are we talking one every hour, one every day? No, it's not that frequent. It's less that frequent than that. Uh, no, we get one where I live in Texas about maybe once every two to three weeks. Yeah. And, um, and certainly... I mean, that wouldn't make me opt out of a system that could save my life in case there's a massive fire coming down the hill at me. So, yeah, I just don't, I don't understand that. But the problem is that, and this is what my friend David was telling me, he said, people have gotten to depend on those phones, and they've always got their nose in the phone. And he said that he was riding with his daughter and her boyfriend, along the shore um, in Southern California, and she was looking at her Google Maps. And she said, you need to turn right up here. It says so on the map. And her dad said that, and David said that when he looked to the right, there was a dock that went out into the ocean. So if he had followed that map, he would have ended up in the ocean. Yeah, you have to use a little common sense when using those. And which begs the point, it might make sense to have in your own vehicles maps of your local area or region so that if your phone does go down or the cell tower goes down or the gps goes down you can still mm -hmm. begin to track your destination well and the other thing is that when these things set your course they usually do it by the least amount of traffic so it's the fastest route but that can take you into like downtown Sacramento at 4.45 in the afternoon and then suddenly 5 o'clock traffic hits and you're in a gridlock down in the middle of town instead of taking a way that goes around it and avoids all that traffic. So there's, there's a lot of issues with this. And, and the way that they have set up their warning system here is it's, it's high-tech based. Warning systems need to be multifaceted High-tech, they need to be low-tech. They need to be no-tech. Um, he was telling me that when he was working in the, in the South Pacific that they have, they take the oxygen bottles and they make bells out of them. And if there's an emergency, and this happened in a tsunami that he went and worked after, he said, anybody can go over and pick up the, the, the pipe or the hammer and bang on that bell, anyone in the community if there's some kind of danger and then the entire community knows about it and they're and because the community is actually out seeing each other interacting with each other they also are more resilient in recovery because they they help each other and they know each other's strengths and weaknesses so part of the problem is also that folks don't know their neighbors like they do they used to i know some communities will do community-wide preparedness or neighborhood-wide preparedness. There was a program that was created out of the Bay Area some years ago after the earthquakes in the 80s to uh, prepare the local citizens. And they would train together and prepare together uh, for those first few hours or first few days of emergency and being able to be self-reliant. I think now the time is, is beyond... Um, and our experience locally of the past couple of years, you need to be self-reliant for more than three days, more like five days or 10 days. That's right. FEMA has changed their tune from, you need to be prepared for 72 hours to be, to you need to be prepared for seven to 10 days. That makes sense, um, particularly for a big earthquake in this community. Likewise, when I was working in the business here in California a number of years ago, our policy in our department was to have to be self-contained in our vehicles. So we had 
five days of water, five days of food and snacks, change of clothes, work gloves, work boots um, in our cars because that's where we spent so much of our time or was close to us. Um, and that may be the, the concept of self-reliance. That's, that's still up there and people forget about it. Yeah, when I was active in search and rescue, my car was always packed with emergency gear, boots, and, you know, the heat blankets and and candles and water and I ha- and you know snacks because I'd go out in the middle of nowhere in an oil lease out in the middle of Texas and if something happened in my car you know I would be I I would have to walk out and that's a long way to walk out there cuz there's a <laughs> big area in Texas where there's nothing but cows <laughs> And that's what I understand that up in, in paradise when the people are evacuating, they had minutes, not half an hour, but minutes to grab and go. And they were, that's all they had. And it reminds me of some of the operations you and I've been on where the people who got out, they got out with their life and their clothes on their back. And that was it without any of the documentation of identification or wallets or what have you. Um, yeah, that, that's what I'm seeing that in some of the service centers down here, they, people are just trying to get the basic, uh, documents so they can substantiate who, who they are and where they live. That's right. But in California, state of Cal, the state of California is actually very proactive in recovery because the last two times I've been here for fires, I've been here three times. The last two times they set up a very large building that had, it had FEMA, it had the SBA because we're like twins joined at the hip, we're always together. But they also had other federal agencies, they had state agencies, they had county agencies. They have, uh, the DMV is, is at the one I'm at right now, and if people lose their licenses, their registrations, their titles, they can go to the DMV in this building and have it, have them replaced for free, and that and when you lose a mobile home, a mobile home has a title like a vehicle, and um, you have to get that title in order to prove that you own the property. And social security is there, so they can replace their social security cards, and get information on social security. There's usually legal services. They're here at this one. Some of the welfare agencies in in. Um, in California are here so they can help folks. They give out disaster food stamps that are different from regular food stamps because they go to people who lost their food if they're already on food stamps. And they can also go to people who were not on food stamps because of the disaster losses that they had. So that's always good too. And there's also a disaster unemployment program to where if if your work is destroyed during a disaster, and you're out of work for a certain amount of time, I think it's five to seven days, depending on what state you're in, then you can apply for disaster unemployment insurance. And that'll help you kind of get some funds back. And Because when you lose everything, you, you lose everything. You don't think about it. But, you know, you, if you get out with your purse, great. But, you know, you're used to having... No, you're used to be able to go to your refrigerator and take out a yogurt or something. You you can't do that. It's you. You're at the mercy of whoever is out there trying to bring relief to people who have survived these things. So, the Salvation Army comes out with food. Baptist men, the Red Cross, they set up shelters and feed people, and and then when they go, then the people are kind of left in the lurch unless. Their, either their insurance or the state and federal support can help them get back on their feet. And this fire is going to take a really long time. It's going to take probably a, a decade before they get back to normal again. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the long, the local long-term recovery committees come in and where they combine their efforts uh, to allocate the, the scarce resources that are available but are so desperately needed by the people that have been wiped out, let alone often the communities that I've been in before, it'll affect part of the community, 
a quarter, a half, a third, an eighth. But in paradise, in up there, it's just leveled everything. And there's just nothing there. And that's so devastating. When I talked to someone who had been out there, he was telling me that the pitched roofed houses, the ones with the tall pointy roofs, they, um, the fire would like land on their asphalt shingles and event and embers. I'm sorry, the embers would land there, and eventually they would catch fire and fall and catch fire of the land, whatever landscaping or dry brush was around there. The fire goes up through the eaves, through the soffit, into the into the ceiling. I'm sorry, into the attic area, and then the house burns from the inside out. Mm. And he said that the only ones that he saw standing were buildings that had stucco on the outside and flat roofs. Wow, how interesting. And they weren't they weren't undamaged, but they were you could tell that they were buildings. He also was telling me that it looked as though, and I've heard this from people who have survived this, that there were explosions, and some of those may have been propane tanks. So you have the fire, and when the roar of that firestorm, and then you have, it's, then it's, then you have explosions, and I, and I can't imagine how incredibly frightening mm. that must have been just terrifying but some one of the other things that happened is that the some of the trees exploded as well when you have the high resin trees with the less dense wood they they too burn from the inside mm -hmm. out. the heat you know expands all that um fluid along uh, just under the bark and and they shoot off like roman candles yeah it's very frightening very mm -hmm. frightening and very yeah, traumatizing when you are around that and you hear that sound and you can feel that energy explode. Mm -hmm. um, well, when the people when the people found out about the fires, of course they tried to get out. They and they lived up in some of them lived up in areas that were like cul-de-sacs, maybe canyon type areas, and all the roads fed into one road. And the, and the, they backed up so far that the fire caught up with the people in the rear, and they were burned in their cars. Mm. And there was reports of some of them getting out of the cars and just running because the cars weren't moving forward anymore. The response to change this problem is has to be immense. It has to be coordinated, and it has to involve a lot of of entities. We need a legislative action to address this we need some laws passed about you know escape routes building roads and and what kind of vegetation is allowed in areas i mean when you're zoning when a town is zoning and they build too fast they put people out in places where there is a lot of flammable material one of the things they need to do is is do is build alternate escape routes Mm-hmm. And I and I understand that it's rocky rocky mountainous area, but you can't have one road out of a neighborhood. Not when everything around you is dry and flammable. Up in Lakeport, some of the the areas of the out of Scotts uh valley, the, the houses have been there, the ranches have been there for a long time. And so there were some old fire roads that were or old roads or access roads that were available. And that was how some of the people got out, was they were using old abandoned roadways that were there. And it was interesting that some of those old abandoned roadways were also where they began to make the fire break and would be able to establish a break for the fire and to begin to get that managed and under control. Yeah, I talked to a wildland firefighter who got his family out. He said he got them in the truck, he got his kids and his wife, and their, I think their dogs. And um, he was he was behind people in this traffic jam on the road. And he says, "I'm a I grew up around here, so I know the back roads. And because I'm a I'm a wildland firefighter, he says I also know the forest the forest gates, the forest department gates, and things like that. And he said, so I went off road." 
and went around the other side of of the area and managed to get out. And then he said when he saw the news, he saw that the cars in front of him had burned and the people had died. That's got to be difficult. It is, but on the other hand, he saved his family. Yeah. And that's the important thing. I also talked to a man who had odd jobs and he was sleeping at his boss's place of work. And when they found out the fire was coming, the boss got his car or his truck, the wife got into her Jeep and he got onto a four-wheeler and they were driving out. Well, the wife had an accident and ran into a tree, I think, that fell. And he dragged her out of the car while it was on fire and put her on that four-wheeler with him and got her out of there. And he, he told me that and I said, you know, that's, a, that's an amazing thing you did. I said, you saved a life. He had to stop and think about it. And then he said, yeah, I did. And I said, and that is a wonderful thing. I said, you did a very good thing. And he, the look on his face was like, he, he was totally unused to anyone praising him for anything. And he did something wonderful. He deserved it. He saved this woman's life. That's where the good comes out of these things. People get an opportunity to choose mm-hmm. and to practice. It's so amazing. Yeah. And, and it, well, and you know, for some people, it's natural to help other people. I mean, for most people, it's natural to help other people. And so anytime I go to any disaster, I always hear stories like this. If it's a hurricane, they, they brought out their boat and they saved me. They came in and, and, and pulled me out from under a tree or, or brought, took me out of a tree that I was hanging on to so I wouldn't drown. People always step, step up. I mean, occasionally there's folks that don't, but for the most part, people will step up. I know I talked to some folks who in this fire who they saw the fire coming. They had five minutes to get out. They tried to wake up their neighbors and take them out because there was elderly people in this mobile home park. But the fire came up so quickly that they couldn't get to some of the houses before the fire got to them. And they knew that their neighbors had passed away. And they managed to get a few of them out. But, I mean, that to me, that would... I think they felt very guilty about that, even though they really didn't have a choice. That's hard. It's tragic and sad. It really is. And and unfortunately, that fire burned so hot. One One of the survivors told me that it melted his Pyrex and it melted his China dishes. And Pyrex, it, although it melts at a lower temperature than regular glass it's it's still a very high temperature and when you're starting to talk about ceramics in china you're talking about some anywhere from 1700 degrees up to uh 3000 degrees depending on what kind of material it is so that was an intensely hot fire and unfortunately that means that they're having to go out there and search for body parts, large bones, is what they are, trying to find remains of large bones. And that would be like the pelvis, femur, um, parts of the skull sometimes. And they have cadaver dogs out there who are trained to sniff out um, the smell of, of cadavers. And they're finding very small parts and having to test them with DNA. And... One of the things I I found out was only 60 people have come in to donate DNA to see if they can identify their relatives. Hmm. Hmm. That was a big operation in Katrina when I was down there. Uh, Yeah, the DNA. Yeah, we had a whole special uh, section that dealt with that. Um to manage it, to respect and honor the people that had passed, and to make the identification and reunification of those 
people. I talked to a man the other day who came in because his father had passed away and he was looking, he was going to get help with the funeral. And he told me, he, he, he lived south, he lived south of the area and he heard about the fire and he called his father at home and his father was asleep. And this happened in the afternoon. And he told his father, you need to get out of there. And it, and it turned out that he didn't make it out. And they did identify his remains with DNA. But the one thing that the son said was, at least I got to say goodbye to him. And that's, and, you know, and that's touching and it's sad, but it also makes me angry because if they had had a better warning system, he might have gotten out of there. Well, maybe there's some value in going back to what we had when I was in my childhood of having air raid sirens back in the 50s. Um, that was quite common, and we would have practices, and they would test them once a month. Um, and maybe that's something to go back to here in California where we have such a high incidence of large, fast-moving fires and put them up in communities so people can begin to get used to them and respond accordingly. Well, and when I was talking to my communication experts friend, he said that sirens, and of course we use sirens all the time in Texas because of tornadoes. And so, and he was living, when he was younger and his children were very small, he was living in Missouri and he had the siren warn him of a tornado that he actually had to go ditch diving to avoid because wow. it came through where his mobile home was. And, but what he says is to get out of this cell phone high-tech thing, you put up sirens in the communities. You can hear them for miles. You put up the sirens, and, tr and but you also have to train the people, retrain the people to not hear the siren and look at their phone because it, with such a complex system, if you have one failure in the system, the entire system goes down. So in a, what he's proposing is that is to and is to train people that when you hear the siren you need to turn on a radio an AM radio maybe an FM radio as well and and if you do that then more people will be warned people in lower economic situations will also be warned because some of them don't have access to the kind of tech that they want to use for this. Socioeconomic, that's the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Good point. And, and, the tra and that's another part of this. They're going to have a multi-pronged approach if they're going to solve this problem. Like I said, one of them is legislation. One of them is, is restructuring the, the transportation system in the areas. They're also going to have to have a public education system to retrain people to listen to, for the sirens. The Federal Emergency Management Agency actually came out of the civil defense system. The Stafford Act created it out of the civil defense system. And that was a system of low-tech warning systems in case of, well, I think mostly it was built for an attack on the nation, nuclear attack or just a conventional attack. And... And I think that, that that was very effective at the time. And the fact that we have cooler toys doesn't mean we should abandon what works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we've certainly experienced when cell towers go down and they can go down quickly, that it takes time to put them back up. And if that is the if we rely on that one system for communication, that's gonna fail. And even up in um, Lakeport or Lake County this year, one of the, the mobile phone companies, they put the communication system of the firefighters, they was on a slow processing and they wouldn't budge on it unless the firefighters uh, upgraded the system. So it, that compromised the response. That's right. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't extend them any bandwidth and they wanted money to do it and they wanted money on the spot. 
And that's unconscionable in, in an emergency situation, I believe. I, I do too. And I think that they got they got a, a good legal treatment on that as well. I know that um, aside from the the warning system and the fires and, and the, and the raking that needs to be done. Um, one of the other issues here is that in Northern California, the water is actually fed down into Southern California for, um, through an aqueduct system, a, a system of dams and aqueducts that um, create hydroelectric power and also bring water down for those, larger cities and for the agricultural areas down there in, in the south uh, south central valley in los angeles yes and so that leaves the area here much drier than it really would be normally and i know that in oklahoma city years long hundred years ago when o when oklahoma city was growing it was very dry. It was like where I live in the Texas Panhandle. But they, what they built this huge lake, Lake Hefner. I mean, it's just a gigantic lake on the edge of town. And that actually changed the climate of the community. It actually made it more humid. And so the, it, it brings the fire danger down if you have large bodies of water that can evaporate into the air. And so taking all that water out of Northern California can contribute to the fact that it's so combustible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to have a higher humidity does make a big difference. And that was what the fire, at uh, the rains done, was to increase the humidity, and that helped a lot. Yes, it did. It, uh, because when it rains on a fire like that, it evaporates before it gets there. I mean, before it actually touches what's burning. I actually, I saw this looking at video today of some people that were driving along a, a multi-lane highway with a drop-off at the edge. And there was fire coming up the side. And they had a, a helicopter come in and dump water on it. And it, <laughs> it dumped water on three lanes of that highway <laughs> with cars on it. So they, they all, I, don't, I couldn't tell if they had an accident or not, but everybody moved over to the inside so they could avoid it. But uh, it, you know, even in that, you know, that's, that's dangerous too. The response can be a dangerous thing as well. I mean, it had to be put out. But, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it just was interesting to me to watch that video. Down south near um, Santa Clarita, it's southwest of Santa Clarita, is the was the Santa Susana Laboratory. It was a lab that had nuclear materials. And when that site burned, they were concerned that they had nuclear materials that were getting into the air. And so I remember when I first got here, there was concerns about, about that nuclear material. And, if it, and when that's airborne, of course, it drops out pretty quickly because it's so heavy and it's got a very heavy atomic weight. But it would still be, it would still have moved through in the area from where it was originally. So when they're doing cleanup here, and they did this when we were here last year, they're, what they are likely to do is they're going to open up each area after it's been cleared by the, by the searchers and the dogs. And what they did in Santa Rosa was they set up a parking lot, and people brought their cars in, and they were given hazmat suits, and they were given sifters. And they were allowed to go into their... They had to show their identification, proof that they lived there. And they were allowed to go into their property and see what they could see what they could rescue. And you sift through, you know, maybe things that fell under the floor while the fire was going on and, and ac didn't actually get burned. Some wedding rings or gold bars or something like that. A lot of people have things in their fireproof safes. But those, at a certain temperature, those safes melt as well. They're not actually fireproof. They're fire resistant. So they lose, they lose things that are important to them. But um, a after this fire, I don't know how much they're going to be able to find. Yeah, it was so hot and so fast, so intense. Um, and I'm amazed at the photographs that I see, the aerial ones. There is just 
and ash footprint is all that remains. There's very little structural uh, material or of solid. Uh, it's just ash, all ash. And when that happens, it's you know it's a hot, 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 hot fire. Do you know what caused this fire? The one, the one here in the north. No, I've, I've, I don't have anything. I don't recall seeing anything that I would quote. Um, there have been some suggestions, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, and they're looking at trying to sift through and identify the source uh, of, of where the fire started. And I don't know what the current belief is now. Well, the is it Pacific? What does PG&E stand for? Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. PG&E, uh, a lot of people are angry and planning to sue PG&E because they feel that it was a break in a power line that sparked a fire. I don't know if that's true, and it may may be, but it, it's even if it's not what caused the fire this time, it has caused a fire before, and it will cause it again. And And this is another prong of the private sector if this is a, is a problem that wires spark when they when they break, then they need to put breakers on on each pole. So if the power between the two poles suddenly is cut off, that the breakers the breaker keeps it from going into those wires. Yeah. You know the the challenge with lawsuits like that is that the the only people that really benefit from that are the lawyers. Uh, because PG&E is a public utility, uh, it's the ratepayers, the members that are going to pay the increased fees uh, and the penalties, and they're the ones who got shortchanged. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that we'll see what happens. I think we will maybe. The challenge is now that we've got weather coming in and has come in, and we have weather coming again this coming week, and that will may destroy some of the evidence and being able to pinpoint where the source was. Mm -hmm. Well, normally you can, you can pinpoint the source where it started because fires will take off in a big V. And when you look back, it's like an arrow that points right to the ignition point. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of, yeah, trying to decide what, what was at that ignition point. I was yeah. also looking at, um, here in Southern, in, here in California, they have um, are developing a way to control vegetation by firescaping is what they call it. And firescaping is taking high water, less flammable plants, and planting them closer to the to the structures, and then removing the high resin, oily plants that tend to catch fire easily from the area. And when I was talking, once again, to the gentleman that went to Paradise, who was didn't call it pleasure, he um, was telling me that the native trees that are high in, in resin had burned completely, but there were some trees that hadn't. And they were the trees that are very dense, like oaks and maples, and that they were still standing, a lot of them. But they're, but they're dense, and they have a higher water content, and they don't explode like the, um, I don't know, tell me, you, you know the names of trees in, around this area better than I do. What? Some of the pines will explode. They'll get very, very hot and then just explode. In, in doing your firescaping, there's um, the Master Gardener program here in California that's um, sourced out of, I believe, UC Davis, University of California, Davis, has manages the Master Gardener programs in each of the counties statewide. You can sort through them, and they have guidelines on fire-resistant landscaping. I'm going to say fire-resistant. I'm not going to say fireproof. And they talk about getting a zone of 30 to 100 feet around your, your – they, they have it zoned out more specific than I do, but the first 5, 10, 15, 30 feet are right around your immediate home to have that is not to have vegetation in there and to use rock in there in the first – five, 10 feet, for example, and then just sparsely um, 
if you do shrubs or trees, use them with high water content and space them out. Don't group them together in a tight cluster. Um, and then if you do have trees to, to manage the, the forest, and we do that up at Lake Tahoe, uh, we manage the forest floor, not necessarily vacuum cleaning with your Hoover or your... Um, <laughs> Uh, um, I'm drawing a blank of who the other um, the other popular Electrolux yeah Electrolux or what have you um, but to use rock landscaping right around the, the immediate area next adjacent to the house and then begin to use some of the native plants or high, high moisture content some of those plants may include the sedums for example you still do wonderful and beautiful landscaping with sedum plants that have tend to have a higher water content. They also hold water in the soil too. Those those sort of plants because they're they're low growing, correct? Mm-hmm. They're low growing. Most of them are low growing. Sometimes your agaves can get quite big, and they are quite often show plants that'll get five feet or more uh, in, in space, but they're really dramatic, but le- very unlikely to actually burn, whereas your manzanita will come up in flame and get pretty hot, um, and your madrones and such. So um, you can talk to local landscapers, and they can help people uh, do a good fire-resistant landscaping around the home and still be attractive and appealing and still have color year-round. Uh, that's all within the realm of possibility. Well, that, and that sounds like yet another prong in the recovery effort is to is to to start educating people on on that as well. Yeah, and it goes back to I think it's when the fire happens, we begin to get uh, our attention is peaked in wanting to be able to be prepared, and part of that is oh yeah, maybe I should have taking more trees out or maybe I could take trees out but it's we come become complacent after some months or a year and we let it slide and it takes something to be vigilant mm-hmm. and mindful about and just on all the time to watch the vegetation around the home to prepare yourself for emergencies uh, and the documentation and, and survival uh, that's incumbent upon the individual but I also think that that should be part of the public education program as well. Most definitely. Most definitely. I know that um, a lot of people don't believe in this because, I don't know, they they do believe in fairies. But um, the, the fact that the climate is changing, I think, has a lot to do with this as well. This, this dryness is, is getting worse and worse as the temperature of the ocean is going up and... And I think that um, another thing that we need to work on, as not just as as California, but as as a nation, is to limit our carbon footprint as low as we can do that. And that's going to take subsidizing alternative renewable energy sources. So giving tax breaks and 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 paybacks to people who put up solar panels. And and where I live, it's windy all the time. There are thousands and thousands of windmills. And as a matter of fact, our nuclear weapons facility there, it's the only nuclear weapons facility in the nation. And 50% of their power comes from windmills. And I I don't know why they haven't actually gone to 100%, but... um, because in, in Amarillo, there's a coal-fired electric plant, and it's always pumping out brown dirt and smoke. So, you know, I the problem is that the coal industry, which our president is trying to bring back, needs to pivot to renewable energy. That's It's like the tobacco companies need to pivot to something that's not harmful, you know, whatever gmo corn is is every i'm i was back up in new york earlier this year and and there's a lot of people that uh, farmers that grow corn up there and and it's just more lucrative to grow the gmo corn which they feed to cows not to people so you know that's in order to make this change happen and 
and make it have the least amount of, of effect on our economy, these place these kind of businesses are going to have to pivot into something that's more planet friendly and more productive instead of destructive. Yeah, it's going to be a lifestyle change, and that's not easy. It never is, but you know what? We came up. We came into the industrial revolution. That was a lifestyle change. Yeah. People moved off the farms and into the cities. That was a lifestyle change. It can be done, but it's going to take some effort. It's it's going to take a lot of effort. Yeah, and I don't think we have a whole lot of time. The uh, government report that came out this last week um, was very clear about that and how that climate change is is upon us and that our window of opportunity to make a change is is now and not in decades but in years if that the last time i saw a report it was 8 to 10 years and then it would be yeah. irreversible which which will also cause a change in society because people will move north in order to grow their food and the breadbasket of america is going to become the dust bowl again and it's mm-hmm. not something that's going to pass. It's going to stay that way. Yeah. Big changes afoot. I know. And you know, even the smoke from the uh the smoke from these fires also has an effect on the climate. Today I think it was the first day it's been, it's been smoke-free and I don't know how many weeks. I I know it has. When I first got here, we were working in the parking lot of Walmart in Oroville, outside, they gave us masks, and I was reading that the particles of smoke that they're worried about are, they, they're small, 2.5 micrometers, and uh, for a comparison as to how small that is, a human hair is 70 micrometers thick. <laughs> And so you think about all those tiny little sacs in your lungs where the oxygen is exchanged with the carbon dioxide and they get plugged up with these minuscule, infinitesimal particles. Those particles cause irritation and they they can block the aerials and so you can't get the oxygen into your blood. I mean, you can... it it can cause lung damage. It can cause it can and what it really does is it exacerbates other illnesses. People who have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, anything that taxes their system makes them sicker. People with cardiac disorders, if they have difficulty breathing, can have events. And then people with autoimmune divor- disorders. I mean. The smoke will make you sick. And if you're sick, it will make you sicker. Yep. Not a happy outlook. No. And unfortunately, there's a cycle here. And that cycle is that we have fires that destroys the vegetation. And then we have rain that causes mudslides. And that's what they're worried about now, is that we'll have enough rain to start mudslides because there's no roots in the soil to hold it where it's supposed to be anymore. And if that happens and there's no place for it to sit and to hold it stabilized, then we don't re- replenish the aquifers that are down below. That's another side mm-hmm. side effect on it. Well, we'll have, we're supposed to have some inch or two of rain coming up this week and we'll see how that fares with the with doing potential mud zones in the communities that we've been affected by the fires this past couple of weeks. Well, let me ask you real quick. Let me ask you real quick. What did you know about the ones down south in Ventura County and Los Angeles County? Is that right? I I know of them. I have not tracked those just because I'm located up here in Northern California. Um, I know those fires have also been very devastating to those communities and to the people down there. Um, but I have not tracked them. I know when I we used to work the, the fires down there, they would go through the canyons, they would do devastating burning, 
of all the vegetation. And that's where when it rained, it would be so devastating because the hills were so steep that the water would just run off and make mud flows. And that was what the, the next disaster was. So we'll see what happens down there. And I've seen some very dangerous mud flows because they will pick up anything in, in its path and, and push it down and can bury it. So I've seen it move cars. I've seen it move houses. Yeah. Cars, trucks, trailers, caterpillars, the whole thing. It just, it's just, unless you've seen it, it's, it's astounding of how powerful they are and the slurry and the mess that it makes. Um, and it just takes forever to find stuff that, that gets swept up in it. And sometimes you never do, because if it hardens, which eventually it will, then it's really difficult to get through. I do know that a lot, because this fire hit Malibu, among other places. Yeah. And a lot of the places where the southern fires hit, there were people that had... many more resources than the people up here do. There's some very wealthy people as well and their houses burned and, but they're heavily insured and, and that's a good thing. Insurance is good. There's a lot of people up here who don't have insurance. They can't afford it. People who are on fixed incomes. That's, I mean, that's not highest on their list of things to be paying for. It was a retirement Mm -hmm. community. It was. And um, we'll see what happens with it now. That'll be another unknown. It's very difficult to get mobile home insurance. And I was also told the other day that if you're if you're at a certain altitude in in this area, that you can't get fire insurance either because you're high enough up the hill to where the fire will come up after you and burn your house. Mm. And if you remember when we were down in Florida, I learned in 2004, I learned to hate insurance companies because we had, we had people come in and say, our, our agent, he's not answering his phone. He's not, every time we'd go to his office, he goes out the back door and we had, had them closing offices and we had, we had at least one that actually declared bankruptcy rather than pay. And down there, those people were paying a deductible for every hurricane. So I'm not real crazy about insurance companies, although the ones <laughs> that I've seen here are really doing a good job of getting out and getting people the assistance that they need as quickly as they can. Well, that's good to hear that there's some good ones that are in there working. <laughs> They're just not in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I th- yeah. I think we've I think we've pretty much covered a lot of the important things that have been happening here. We've kind of covered a lot of ground here tonight, I think. Um talking about preparedness, talking about uh a multi-pronged uh front to to make changes coming up, whether it be legislative um or other other venues, but public education. Uh, I think we've also talked a bit about notification and how people could be notified of disasters, whether it's in, to expand that beyond just a landline and just cell phones, but to other other possibilities. Yeah, we've covered a lot of a lot of territory here tonight. Yeah, yeah. Warning systems are the big are the key, and warning systems are very difficult to manage. They are. No, I think I was just going to talk about being self-prepared, as that seems to be one of the pieces I'm always on, is how important it is to be self-reliant and self-prepared to respond in an emergency, wherever you are, uh, to have that self-preparedness and attitude. Yeah, having having an attitude of preparedness makes you notice the things that you need to focus on in order to mm-hmm. to survive something like this. And I do know that I talked to um, a family the other day, and he said after the fires last year, he purchased a, a, an RV, and he put it on someone's land in another county in another area. And he put his put some of his 
his personal property in there. He put in clothing and he put in, you know, I don't know what all he put in there. Me- probably medications and and water and some stored food and and some of his and copies of his documents and and when he came in they had this really neat little book no- notebook that was full of all their documents and and they and they had a place to stay and they had clothes to wear and they had food to eat and water to drink. Well, but not everybody can afford that. Mm-hmm. But yes, if you can do that, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again for a chance to talk with you again about these interesting topics to me that we both share and value. Um, it's been it's been fun connecting and talking again with you. It has, and and I really enjoyed lunch too. By the way, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Even though I had to sit there for how long? <laughs> I think I'm it, the lunch. Next lunch is on me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Good. You'll have to come to Texas. Okay. I'll take you to the big Texan. You can eat the 72-ounce steak. (laughs) Free 72-ounce steak. Oh, my goodness. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you again for a good evening of conversation. Thank you. Well, and thank you because I couldn't do this without my co-host, and you are a wonderful co-host. Today's disaster tip comes from the Butte County Fires in California. If you see fire coming towards you or receive a warning, get out immediately. Don't worry about saving anything but your family. It's important to get out early to avoid a possibly deadly gridlock. If people are fleeing on foot, try not to pass them by. And don't forget to let people know you're okay by phone, text, email, Facebook, or Twitter.